In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Please be seated. Calling can be a difficult and weird thing. It can lead you to places where you never thought you'd go. There are times where you tell God you're done. It's over. And he pulls you right back in. And he leads you on paths you never thought you'd walk on. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now Jeremiah lets us know all about himself here. We knew from the beginning of the book that he's from a priestly family. He'd one day become a priest. He lived in the midst of his cousins and the fellow Levites. But his call didn't mean his life was going to be easy. Now I want to back up and read the two verses before our Old Testament passage this morning to give us a little context. It says, The word of the Lord came to him the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, through the reign of Joachim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Now it's been about a century since Isaiah began preaching to the kingdom of Judah. It's been 90-ish years since the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. The message of the prophets in Judah was one that sees ups and downs. Some kings obeyed God and, the thing, and places got better. Others didn't and things got worse. Zephaniah was called to preach a few years before Jeremiah did, kind of like Amos and Isaiah. Habakkuk and Nahum are prophets during Je Jeremiah's lifetime. Huldah, the prophetess mentioned in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, who's a relative of Jeremiah's, is ministering too. God continues to talk to his people. And in the midst of all this, he tells young Jeremiah that it's time to go and speak. And he says, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. Now Jeremiah here is late, likely in his late teens or early 20s when God calls him to begin. He may have been in that awkward phase where he was old enough to be considered an adult, but not quite there yet. Right? We've all had that conversation, those of us with children, with our kids as they get older, right? Hey, I'm 18 now. I'm 21 now. I know what I'm doing. I'm just going to do what I want. Thomas, just plug your ears at this part. It's okay. <laughs> and it's another thing to tell your parents that, but it's a completely different thing to stand before the king, before the priests. And remember, he's from a priestly family. These are his father, his uncles, his cousins. Stand before the high priest, the generals, the elders, and every, tell everyone that God's saying you need to change. Wrestling with your calling, be it to ordained ministry, your profession, or anything else that God calls you to do. It can be a humbling experience. You learn things about yourself that make you want to repent, that make you want to change. Sometimes they make you want to run away and hide, like Jonah. When, Mo when God told Moses in front of the burning bush that he was called, he looked at the burning bush and said to God, I'm not the one you want, you want my brother Aaron. He's a much better public speaker than I am, God. But God reassures Jeremiah. He promised to deliver him. He reached out and touched his mouth and told him, I put words in your word, my words in your mouth. Today I appoint you over nations and kingdom to pluck up and pull down, destroy and overthrow, 
to build and to plant. With God's calling comes great responsibility. One that I know I'd be tempted to abuse, right? Pluck up, pull down, destroy, overthrow. Time to get even. Jeremiah doesn't do that. Even when the people don't listen, even when they throw him into a big pit for a long time, he doesn't abuse his power. He prays. He weeps. That's what he does instead. But along with the power, as we mentioned, he can also build and plant. He tells God's people that God's protection is about to be lifted, but that in 70 years they'll be restored. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David was called to be king in his youth. The nation already had a king, though. And David refused to speed up God's timetable. He had opportunities to, to overthrow Saul. He had opportunities to take him, his life and make himself the king. But he waited. And when he was king, he did good things. But he also gave into the temptation of power. And because of that, he knows what God's benefits are. He forgives all your sins and heals all your infirmities. He redeems your life from the grave and crowns you with mercy and loving kindness. His, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and of great kindness. David knew all about God's compassion and mercy. He knew that God was faithful and just to forgive our sins. God's people knew that too. They turned back to him. But by the time of Zephaniah and Jeremiah, they turned away again. But God was faithful to send prophets to warn them, to call them back to righteousness and justice. Now he is teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had been crippled for 18 years. She was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you're set free from your ailment. Now this morning we see Jesus. He's still on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, we started weeks ago. Jesus is just slowly headed towards Jerusalem. Today is the Sabbath and he stops to worship. And being a visiting rabbi, they ask him to get up and preach the morning lessons. And as he's teaching, notice that Luke doesn't tell us what passage he's preaching on. He doesn't give us Jesus' sermon this morning. I'm sure it was good. And trust me, as someone who preaches, we know how all that feels. Not getting your sermon recorded. But what Luke did say was he saw a woman who has been over and crippled. And Jesus, seeing her, reaches out and heals her. Now at this point, the leader of the synagogue objects. Now we often paint him as the bad guy in this story. The thing is, he's trying to serve God faithfully from his understanding of God's law. Was he wrong? Yes. Was he being malicious? I don't think so. I think he didn't understand that the law was given not as an inflexible set of rules, but as a schoolmaster to teach us. And some in his day understood the lesson, right? We've heard the lawyer tell Jesus when Jesus asked, what do you have to do to get to the kingdom of God? He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The lawyer knew what the, what the schoolmaster was trying to teach. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6.5. That's the first commandment. And Leviticus 19.18. That's the second one. And Jesus said he was close to the kingdom. This leader, though, didn't get the lesson he should have been learning. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away and give it water? 
And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for eighteen long years, be set free from bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all the opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd rejoiced in all the wonderful things he was doing. See, they had made provisions in the law and in their understanding of it for economic reasons. They could go and take care of their animals, right? Their livelihood, their transportation on the Sabbath. But they hadn't made provisions for caring for each other, for loving their neighbor as themselves. Jesus keeps telling them over and over in the Gospels that the Sabbath, the day of rest, was made for their deliverance. It was supposed to be a day of worship and rest and healing. Now I'm going to go ahead and spoil the story of Jeremiah here. Given that it's over 2,600 years old, I hope you'll forgive me. The people of Judah don't listen. They're conquered and sent into exile. And my namesake's heart is broken when he sees it happen, because he lives through it all. God does protect him. And when they come back from exile, God's people are zealous not to break his commandments again. But Jesus keeps telling them they focused on the wrong thing. They should be focused on loving God and loving each other, and too often they're focused on obedience to the rules and the rules they create to make sure they're following the rules instead of loving each other. You've not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. The book of Hebrews is one of contrasts, comparing Jesus and his works to the angels, to the prophets, to Moses, to the high priests, and always showing that what Jesus did is better. Here we see the writer comparing how the first law came and how Jesus came in mortal flesh and was resurrected. How God spoke to his people on Mount Sinai, an isolated mountain in the middle of nowhere. He spoke to them in fire and darkness and a storm, a voice that was so loud, so different, so holy, God's people begged for him to stop talking. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Instead of Mount Sinai, we're called to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem, where we gather in light with the angels and all those called before his throne room, where Jesus is, the one who on the Sabbath healed the woman, the one who saved us all and brought us into his glorious kingdom. The writer says, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of what was shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks, by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews knows that one day all of creation will end. Right, Barry, the heat death of the universe. At some point, creation will be no more. But we can have assurance that through faith, we're part of a kingdom that will not be consumed or shaken one that is eternal in the heavenly Jerusalem, and one that is predicated on faith and love. Loving God and our neighbor. Amen.